Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. It's time for Sorallo Sports Talk with Joe Sorallo. Episode 20 of The Big Show as we get ready to head to the big game. The last show right here, right now, before Sorallo Sports Talk takes over Tampa Bay ahead of Super Bowl 55. I can't wait to see Tom Brady and the Buccaneers take on Patrick Mahomes and the Kansas City Chiefs. I mean, we got the Super Bowl that provides endless storylines. Tampa Bay becoming the first team in the game's 55-year history to play it in their home stadium. Kansas City, what Patrick Mahomes has done there. The first quarterback at his age to already make his second Super Bowl appearance in three years. Patrick Mahomes now has an MVP, a Super Bowl MVP, and will already be playing in his second Super Bowl at the age of just 25 years old. And then you've got Tom Brady, right? Playing in his 10th Super Bowl. He's gone 6-3 and in the big game to this point. Don't make any mistake about it. No one will do this again. And look, I, for one, did not want to see Tom Brady in the Super Bowl again. I think we all have Tom Brady fatigue on the final weekend of the NFL season. But that doesn't take away from how remarkable it is what he's done. I mean, did I want to see Aaron Rodgers and Josh Allen? Absolutely. You all know that. I was rooting for a Green Bay Buffalo Super Bowl. I wanted Aaron Rodgers in who knows what could have been his last year as a Green Bay Packer. They, of course, wasted that first round pick on a quarterback in Jordan Love back in April, I wanted to see Rodgers go to the big game. And I thought this was his best chance. He went 13-3 and back-to-back years, and I thought this team was so much better than that 2019 squad last year that got embarrassed by San Francisco in the NFC title game. And of course, who didn't want to see, on the flip side, Josh Allen and the Buffalo Bills. I mean, the Bills were by far the most fun team in football this season. You hate to see how it ended, but you have to applaud them you know, I spoke to a lot of Bills fans who are friends of mine after that game. And I told them, you know, if someone had offered this to you preseason, a conference championship game appearance, I think everyone would have taken it. I think absolutely everyone would have jumped on it after watching a lifetime of mediocrity if you're a Bills fan my age. So a lot to applaud Buffalo for. They are not one of those teams that should be disappointed. You know, if you're Green Bay, it's not good enough. There are no moral victories at this point. If you're Green Bay, the season was a disappointment because for the second straight year, you were one win away from the Super Bowl and you failed to get there. If you're Buffalo, this is only just the beginning. I mean, Stephon Diggs and Josh Allen in year one emerged as one of the league's most dynamic, most dangerous quarterback wide receiver duos. And there is a lot to build on in Buffalo. Can they improve on defense? Absolutely. Do they need a running game? 100%. Is their offensive line that they need to shore up to begin with? Going to lose some members this offseason? Yeah, that'll get worked on. The Bills have a lot to look forward to. But right now, what we have to look forward to is the Buccaneers and the Chiefs in Super Bowl 55. And frankly, Tampa Bay is lucky to be there. Because they got outplayed for a majority of that game in Lambeau Field on Sunday. In fact, Tom Brady was, and this really isn't even up for debate, 
Tom Brady was the worst quarterback on the field Sunday. Aaron Rodgers, once again, as usual, as is always the case with Aaron Rodgers in Green Bay, stood out, was an absolute shining star, but had absolutely no help coming from anywhere. I mean, that Green Bay Packer defense played like they were in the Canadian Football League. Did anyone want to let the Packers know that the NFL, you play four down defense? That you have to stop a team three times before they punt? I mean, the first two downs, they were great. They got in the backfield. They applied pressure on Brady. And then it was like third down time and time again, especially in the first half. They were taking plays off left and right. I mean, that was one of the most embarrassing third down defense showings I had ever seen. Not the Canadian Football League, guys. No one's punting on third down here. That was absolutely awful. And then his receivers. I mean, Equinemius St. Brown. You know, the guy would probably get a lot more attention if he was a halfway decent wideout because coming out of college, guy's built very similarly to DK Metcalf. Yet, he's been in the NFL now, what, three, four years? And he can't catch a cold. Let an open two-point conversion attempt go right off his chest plate. I mean, what the hell does Aaron Rodgers have to do in Green Bay to get a lick of help? You would think, I mean, maybe give him a weapon with your first-round draft pick, but no, the Packers are too busy already planning for his replacement? Well, here's a newsflash for Green Bay. You're not going to win a Super Bowl when you're planning to replace the quarterback you currently have who can get you there. It's just not going to happen. If you don't give him weapons, if you don't give him that extra linebacker, that extra receiver, that extra offensive lineman, well, how much can he do on his own? And you saw on Sunday a Packer team that just dug themselves into too big of a hole to work out of with the limited weapons that their MVP quarterback has. I mean, he outperformed Brady, but the defense was sleeping. Third down, I mentioned they were atrocious. How about that last play of the first half? Look, Scotty Miller is not Antonio Brown. Can the kid fly? Absolutely, no doubt about it. How the hell do you let him get behind you on that play, though? And I mean, I don't know who to blame more. I don't know if that's more on the coaching or if that's on the guys on the field. Because, I mean, coaching can only do so much. As a defensive back, you have to know, last play, Hail Mary, no one gets behind you. And Kevin King was caught disinterested. He was caught sleeping out there. And Scotty Miller snuck his way into an easy touchdown. And that's why Tampa Bay won the game. Because if Tampa Bay went into the locker room, leading 14-10 to at halftime, we're talking about a whole different ballgame. We're talking about the Aaron Rodgers, Patrick Mahomes Super Bowl that so many analysts wanted to see preseason and again as someone who wanted to see Rodgers versus Josh Allen I would have gladly taken Rodgers versus Patrick Mahomes because that would have been the two most talented quarterbacks in the NFL no disrespect to Tom Brady he's the GOAT but right now right here in the year 2021 Aaron Rodgers Patrick Mahomes as evident by their play this season probably the two most talented guys in the National Football League and if Green Bay was down just 14-10 at halftime those are the two we'd be talking about But instead, when we talk about Aaron Rodgers, we're talking about how his teammates let him down, how his coach, Matt LaFleur, let him down, and potentially where the hell he'll be suiting up come opening week, September 2021. If I'm Aaron Rodgers, I am heavily considering leaving the Green Bay Packers. His only weapon, the teammate who he appears to by far have the best chemistry with, Devontae Adams, is an unrestricted free agent after next season. Rodgers has an opt-out in his contract after next season. So maybe because he can stay with Devontae, we get one more year of Aaron Rodgers in Green Bay. But 
He's already got his successor, Jordan Love, awaiting the opportunity on the sideline to come in and to be the next quarterback of the Green Bay Packers. His front office obviously isn't all in on him if they choose to draft a quarterback instead of someone who can help Rodgers out. And to add insult to injury, the Green Bay Packers have one of the worst cap space situations in the National Football League going into next season. So yeah, excuse me if this is selfish, but if I'm Aaron Rodgers, maybe, just maybe, I'm more interested in playing for a team like the Indianapolis Colts or the San Francisco 49ers, two teams that, with the exception of the quarterback position, are in far better positions to win than the Green Bay Packers. So there's a lot to see how it unfolds there. You know, if you want to blame Rodgers for anything on Sunday, sure, go ahead, blame him for the two three-and-outs following back-to-back fourth-quarter interceptions thrown by Tom Brady. That's absolutely understandable. For me, what I saw on those two possessions was a quarterback who is human. He's the best quarterback in the league this year in 2020, in the 2020 NFL season, will be the MVP when that's announced the night before the Super Bowl. A guy who, after three-plus quarters of being hit and having balls dropped and watching his defense continually drop the ball in the most important situations, a guy who, yeah, didn't step up to the plate in those particular moments. So... If you want to fault him for being human, go right ahead. Aaron Rodgers was still far and away the best player on that field on the offensive side of the ball for either team on Sunday. My one problem with his performance, because I I really don't want to fault him for those two three and outs. It happens. Sometimes you can't move the chains. He did it most of the game and he had no help. So for those two possessions, excuse him. My one problem is that one play at the end, third and goal, just on the right side for Green Bay of the two-minute warning where Rodgers didn't run the ball. In the moment, it's tough. You can't put yourself in his position there, what he's seeing. I mean, this is a guy who has the best vision of any quarterback in football. So who knows what he saw, whether or not he thought he had a realistic chance to make it to the end zone. My only problem with that is if you're going to hammer Matt LaFleur for not going for it on fourth and goal, you have to acknowledge If Rodgers takes off, even if he doesn't score, gets to the two-yard line, the three-yard line, you're probably dealing with a Green Bay team that goes for it there. So do I have issues with how Matt LaFleur called the game? Absolutely. I think he was far too conservative, running the ball on second and longs when your team is in an 11-point and then an 18-point hole. I have no respect for that. To me, that is not winning football. But on that particular play, his decision would have been a lot easier to go for it had Rodgers taken off and run the ball, even without scoring, if he just gained five yards. Now, I still think fourth and goal from the eight, you go for it. I think in that particular position, if you're Green Bay, you have to go for an underneath route that if you have a little bit of space with a guy like Devontae Adams, he can break to the end zone. But if not, you back Tampa Bay up along the goal line. On a play like that, if I don't have anyone wide open in the end zone, I'm looking to throw it to someone who's about at the two-yard line This way, if they've got a little room, work their way in. If not, you're giving Tampa the ball at the two with all three of your timeouts and on the right side of the two-minute warning. By opting to kick the field goal in that situation and then kick the ball off, not even attempt an onside kick, but kick the ball off back to the Buccaneers, you're giving them way more room to work with, way more field to work with. You're giving Tom Brady exponentially more time in the pocket to get a first down and make sure that Aaron Rodgers doesn't touch the ball again. And that's ultimately what happened. By kicking that field goal 
and kicking the ball off to Tampa Bay, Matt LaFleur ensured that the best player on the field, the guy who will be named the best player in the league in 2020, didn't touch the ball again. And that would be an awful way for Aaron Rodgers' time as a Green Bay Packer to come to an end. But it might be a fitting way for it to come to an end because this is an organization, a franchise, that has never prioritized their best player, that has never maybe realized that they've been gifted one of the most talented, if not the most talented arm of all time. And they let him go to waste. Just like they've let so many seasons go to waste. This was the Green Bay Packers' best chance, and they squandered it away. Now, Tom Brady, again, he was not the best quarterback on the field Sunday by any stretch of the imagination, but God, give the guy credit for what he's accomplished. Year one on a new team, year one away from Bill Belichick, and Tom Brady is going to his 10th Super Bowl, third in the last four years. Now, you can actually take that one step further and say it's his fourth in the last five years. I say third and four because out of the four that now I will have covered, Tom Brady will be the starting quarterback in three of them. And that's absolutely remarkable to me. Now, this is a record that will probably never be broken. I mean, in the four major sports in the last 40 years, we've only seen two players go to 10 championships. And that's LeBron James, who's four and six in his 10. And now Brady going to his 10th, as I already mentioned, six and three thus far. You might never see a football player go to 10 Super Bowls. But if there's one who can do it, who will challenge Tom Brady for any Super Bowl record, any postseason record out there, it's the guy he's going up against, Patrick Mahomes. I mean, that night game, you know, I picked Buffalo to win. And boy, did I misread this Kansas City Chiefs team. They went out there and they dug themselves into a 9-0 hole and they dominated from that point on. I mean, this was a team that I faulted for not blowing teams away all season long. I faulted them for beating a team like the Carolina Panthers, just 33-31. I faulted them for letting Matt Ryan and the Falcons hang around. I faulted them for beating Denver by 8 on Sunday Night Football. They were disinterested. I mean, this was a team that was waiting for a challenge, was waiting for a team that folks like myself were picking to end their season, to beat them, and to say, see, they had a Super Bowl hangover. Well, the Chiefs found just the opponent that obviously pissed them off enough because the Buffalo Bills went in there and a lot of people were saying if there was going to be an upset on Championship Sunday, it wouldn't be Brady and the Bucks over Green Bay. It would be Josh Allen and the Bills going to Arrowhead and beating the Chiefs because the Chiefs, despite winning 14 games, haven't been winning them convincingly enough. Well, Sunday was convincingly enough for me. That's for damn sure. I mean, the Buffalo Bills from about halfway through the first quarter on didn't stand a chance. They didn't look, and they were a 13-win team themselves, they didn't look like they belonged in the same field as Kansas City. That looked like it might have been the Cincinnati Bengals out there playing the reigning Super Bowl champs. I mean, the Buffalo Bills were overmatched. They were flustered and not even necessarily by Kansas City's offense, which, oh, by the way, they couldn't stop all night. I mean, that offense, Travis Kelsey, Tyreek Hill, those two guys alone, forget the plethora of running backs they have and the other track stars in the wide receiving core. Those two guys alone, future Hall of Famers, it's all Patrick Mahomes needs. But it was the Kansas City defense that absolutely stunned me because this is a defensive unit that started last season, 2019, the season they won the Super Bowl, very slowly. But as that season progressed, as week 10 rolled around, 
that defense started to pick things up. And then with the lone exception of their first quarter and a half against Deshaun Watson and Houston in the divisional round of the playoffs, that defense became dominant. And this year, I really never saw it click. I never saw that defense go out there and dominate opposing teams. It was there against Buffalo. They dominated that offensive line of the Buffalo Bills. They shut down that receiving core. They bruised and battered Josh Allen and gave Buffalo zero opportunity to turn to their run game. I mean, Kansas City's defense, as great as Patrick Mahomes was, as incredible as Travis Kelsey was setting all sorts of Tight end records for a single postseason game. Tyreek Hill turning screen passes into 70-yard gains. All fantastic. The Kansas City defense was the star of the show Sunday night. With Steve Spagnola assembled against Buffalo, if he can assemble anything somewhat mirroring that. Now look, Tampa Bay is going to be prepared. Tampa Bay has a better offensive line than the Bills. Tom Brady has seen Steve Spagnola a time or two. Tom Brady knows how to handle pressure. But once he starts getting hit, those dominoes fall. I can't wait to see that matchup. Kansas City's defense versus Tampa Bay's offensive line. That, to me, is how Super Bowl 55 is going to be decided. And I'll have a lot more on that next week from Tampa Bay. When we return, NFL and College Hoops on CBS announcer Spiro Ditas joins the show to talk about the Super Bowl, these conference championship games, and a little bit on Kobe Bryant just a year removed from his passing. Stick with us. Sorallo Sports Talk with me, Joe Sorallo. We'll be right back. Here we go. Don't even think about leaving. You're locked into the best sports talk out there. Here's Joe. Sports Talk and joining the show. As promised, you can catch him on CBS calling the NFL or college hoops. He's formerly the voice of the LA Lakers and the New York Knicks. It's Fordham's finest, Spiro Ditas. Thanks so much for joining the show. Hey, Joe. Good to be with you, my friend. Spiro, I want to start with this past weekend. The conference championship games, starting with the early game, Green Bay and Tampa Bay. I want to know what was running through your mind when Matt LaFleur sent out the field goal unit with just over two minutes to go in the fourth quarter and a trip to the Super Bowl on the line. You know, like most fans surprised, I think just based on the simple fact that you have a future hall of fame player at the quarterback position and we've seen Matt LaFleur roll the dice in, in other situations. So you know, first reaction was certainly surprise, but you know, one thing I've learned broadcasting games, Joe, you, you, know, you just never have the full picture when you're up in the booth or when you're sitting on your couch watching the game as a fan, you know, we all have that kind of visceral first reaction. And a lot of times maybe we're right, but a lot of times we don't know kind of the full scope of, of certain factors that a coach is, is weighing in his mind at that particular moment. You know, look, I'm sure Matt LaFleur wants that decision back. It could haunt him for a while. I think it will until green Bay is able to get on the field and next season begins but that's how quickly things change. You know, I mean, Matt LaFleur had a, had a tremendous season as a head coach. Green Bay was, you know, for, for many people's money, the, the favorites in the NFC, certainly with their playoff position. And now, 
you know, he's got to answer these questions for the next four, five, six months until next season begins. So it's a very cruel business. Um, incredible to see Tom Brady going to his 10th Super Bowl. I mean, it's just, it's mind boggling the career that he's had and that continues at his age. And um, it's just a marvel. But this is, you know, this is the great part about sports, you know, the NFL, the NBA, whatever sport you like, it's the raw motion of, of these games, especially when you get in these later stages of the year in the postseason when uh, when really legends are made and and um, and as a fan, this is this is what you want. This is the time of year you wait for. Yeah, no, it absolutely is. Now, when you look at Aaron Rodgers' post game press conference after the game, right? A lot of uncertainty surrounding it. A lot of uncertainty directly from Rodgers and his answers. How realistic is it that he could be on a different team come opening week next season? I think anything's possible. I, I think we've seen some of the great quarterbacks change teams. Obviously, Tom Brady. Uh, you think of a guy like Joe Montana, you know, we never thought that that Montana would play for any other team aside from the 49ers. And lo and behold, he he changed addresses towards the end. So, you know, I think Aaron Rodgers is, is at the point of his career where he's accomplished everything he possibly could in Green Bay. I think certainly the sting of what happened on Sunday will be very raw for him for a couple of weeks. Uh, I think his postgame press conference um, was just a guy who was frustrated, angry, uh, certainly for not getting an opportunity on that fourth down play. I think some of that was directed at his head coach. But I think with with Aaron, cooler heads prevail usually. He's such a he's such a stable guy mentally, psychologically. I think we've seen that in his career. And um and I think he'll sit when the time comes and decide what he wants to do. I don't I don't think he was speaking um uh, you know, out of tour, out of turn or out of school. I, I really don't think he knew at that moment and probably still doesn't know in his mind what he wants to do. But when the time comes, he'll make that decision. I know San Francisco has been rumored, you know, based on his hometown where he grew up, maybe coming full circle in terms of where his football journey began. Um, and if you're Green Bay fans, you know, you're, you got some nervous weeks ahead of you now trying to wait and see what he ends up deciding to do. Yeah, you absolutely do. Shifting over to the night game, right? Because the AFC Conference Championship game, after all, with CBS, most of the games you call are AFC games. And mm -hmm. you called a couple Buffalo games earlier in the season. It was an incredible run for the Bills. What was the biggest difference between Josh Allen of 2020 as opposed to Josh Allen of 2019 that you got to see up close this year? Well, I think we, we saw a player really evolve in terms of confidence. And, and look, even when he struggled as a rookie last year as well, he, he was always a brash kid. But I think there were moments where you can see Josh maybe a little bit unsure of himself and questioning whether or not he can make the throw in a tight window or make the big pass on a, on a third and long when the game was on the line. The Josh Allen we saw this year – evolved into a player I think who was supremely confident in his ability to make every throw on the field you know we had seen Allen the athlete the runner make incredible plays with his legs this year I think we saw a kid who really became a seasoned passer in the pocket and a guy who can make any throw you know no matter what the situation called for um I was a little surprised that that Buffalo didn't compete a little bit more on Sunday. But again, it's a testament to what we've seen from Kansas City. I mean, this is a real bona fide championship team with genera generational talent in Patrick Mahomes. And to beat them at this stage of, of the season, you got to play a near perfect game. And, and Buffalo was far from that. They just made too many mistakes. But you know, you, you think of where they've come, Joe, as a franchise under Sean McDermott and their general manager, Brandon Bean, 
it is mind-boggling to see how far they've come as a franchise. I mean, this is now a, des- a destination franchise where free agents want to come and play. And I think that begins with McDermott. It begins with Brandon Bean, the front office, what they've built from the top. And now, you know, the nucleus that they have with, with Allen, with Stephon Diggs, with the defensive guys that they have on the other side of the, of the ball with uh, Tredavious White and a, a litany of other players. Buffalo's here to stay. I think they have staying power with the way that they've built it. Yeah, I completely agree. I think that a Bills Chiefs AFC Conference Championship game is something we might be able to get used to. But flipping to Kansas City, I mean, this was a team that, uh, like you, I was surprised to see how they dominated once they fell behind 9 nothing. They let a lot of teams hang around this year. So what was that in your opinion? Was it a lack of interest, just kind of waiting to get to the postseason to shift it in that next gear for Kansas City? Uh, I mean, how do you explain them letting a team like Carolina hang around and winning that game 33-31 and other games of that sorts? You know, I, I, I've had the good fortune in my time with the Lakers, Joe, being around teams that have won championships and teams that have been perennially contending teams at the top. And I think sometimes we forget the, the mental exhaustion that sets in when you're playing at the top and when you are the hunted every week and you're getting every team's best shot. I, I just don't think that it's possible to keep your foot on the gas pedal 24-7 and for an entire season, every play. And sometimes as fans, we sit and we ask those same questions that you just asked. You know, uh, why do they take their foot off the pedal? Why do they seem disinterested? I just think it's human nature. I, I think it's such a, a demanding sport. I think the, the level of competition is such that, you know, us mortals, we, we can't really understand or fathom what that grind is like. And, and the other team gets paid too. I mean, they're great players on every team. Even the teams at the bottom of the standings have great players. And sometimes those players make the difference in games. And a team like Carolina can hang with Kansas City for a quarter or for a half or even for most of a game. Uh, and another thing I've learned, you know, sometimes games just don't make sense. You know, you think a team is, is a, a lock to win a game or to dominate Team X and the opposite happens. So, it's again, that's a great thing about sport. You know, it's, it's just it's the best reality television. And uh, and we're very fortunate to be able to to watch as fans and certainly to work as, as uh, broadcasters. Absolutely. So with that said, then I, I know we're a week and a half from the game and it's tough to make a prediction this early. But what matchup in Super Bowl 55 do you think will be the deciding factor? So tough. You know, I, I think Tampa Bay is in a very good place with their offense. Um, I, I think I, I just saw today Antonio Brown is going to play. That's going to be a big addition for them. I think they're going to need all hands on deck. Um, Brady with those receivers and obviously Gronk. I mean, they're so deadly. Leonard Fournette running the way he was on Sunday. I think if they can get that production from their offense, they've got a shot. But to me, it's going to come down to Tampa's defense. What can they do? to neutralize Patrick Mahomes, um, to make him uncomfortable and to really force him into some situations that he doesn't want to be. Because if you allow them to play well on first down, get into those second and favorables, third and favorables, I I just don't think that you have a chance to beat them. I think you've got to get pressure on Mahomes. I think that's at the top of the list for Tampa's defense. And it starts from there. Then I think you can start to create some opportunities uh, for some takeaways and to put them into some situations they don't want to be offensively. But if you let Mahomes and that offense dictate, then he starts picking you apart with Tyreek Hill and, and Kelsey, who was just out of his mind on Sunday. So, you know, it's a long list of priorities that that the Bucks defense has to take care of. But, you know, you go back into the history of the Super Bowl and, and these 
prolific offenses against really good defenses with defensive coordinators. I think back to the, the 91 Super Bowl, the Giants and the Bills, you know, that, that Bills offense that just seems so unstoppable. And you gave Bill Belichick two weeks to prepare. You can come up with a viable plan. So again, another thing that we love about the NFL playoffs, it's a one game deal. It's not a best of seven. It's not a best of five. You just have to figure it out for one game. And I think at this level with the athletes that these teams have, anything is possible. Absolutely. And I can't wait to be down in Tampa for that game. Spiro, I want to shift focus to a team that you're very close to, the LA Chargers, of course, your preseason work with them. What are your thoughts on the Brandon Staley hire? Did that surprise you as much as it did me? I was expecting a move to a guy like Eric Bieniemy, maybe Brian Dable to pair with the young stud quarterback and Justin Herbert. But they go the defensive route, bring Brandon Staley. And what did you think about that hire? Yeah, you surprised for a number of reasons. One, he's so young. And, you know, just one year is the Rams uh, defensive coordinator. You know, he's not a guy who's been around uh, in one of the primo jobs for many years. So that was kind of a surprise. His age, certainly he's a younger guy. Um, you mentioned Dable and Bienemy. I, I think at the end of the day, they were both hurt by the fact that they just weren't available to go through the process. And, you know, I know Dean Spanos and the Spanos family and the, the Chargers front office really wanted to get moving on a hire. And there was something in that interview process with Staley that really resonated with them. And I think in the NFL, Joe, there, there's so much on the line. You know, there, it's, it's become such big business that when you hire a coach, it, it's, it really comes down to a feel thing for an owner. You know, I mean, some of these guys, they've got great track records. You know, they're, they're clearly terrific coaches. But if there's not that chemistry, I think, between owner and coaching candidate, I just don't think that these owners are willing to take that chance. You know, we've seen too many horror stories when it doesn't work out and when a, a marriage between an owner and a head coach or a front office and a head coach goes south quickly. And then it's just it becomes a nightmare situation for both sides. So. Clearly, there was something that they liked in Staley's personality. I mean, you saw his press conference, a very personable guy. Uh, he's a great communicator. And I think we're starting to see this now. The NFL is so cyclical. Sean McVay's success a couple of years ago at his age, I think really caused a, a light bulb to go off for a lot of these owners to where they're all kind of looking for that next young, hot head coach. And, you know, that McVay thing really, I think, just set the new standard of what these owners are looking for. And now it's Staley's chance. We'll see what he's what he's made of. And I think we'll we'll find out pretty quickly if he's the guy. Yeah, I mean, so far it's worked out in Green Bay. They went the same route with LaFleur. Cincinnati, mm -hmm. you got to give some time, obviously, with Zach Taylor. But surprising move. We'll see how it works. Now, you had a Chargers game. I believe it was week 16 against Denver fairly late mm -hmm. in the year. You got to see Herbert in action. You also had, I believe, four Bengals games with Joe Burrow at quarterback, including, correct me if I'm wrong, the one that he got injured in, correct? That's correct, yes. So after seeing those two up close this year, which impressed you more? What do you take away from their games? How do they compare to each other? Mm, so good. I mean, you know, it's crazy. A couple of years ago, we were talking about the dearth of young, good, dynamic quarterbacks in the NFL. Uh, it seemed like teams were missing on so many guys at the top of the drafts. And, and lo and behold, this year, you've got two guys who are, are just – you know, surefire foundational type cornerstone quarterbacks. Um, and, you know, it's crazy. The Chargers had the good fortune of having a future Hall of Famer in Phillip Rivers for years and years. 
they turn right around and they get a guy like Justin Herbert, you know, and then you've got NFL franchises that have been searching for like 20 years for a quarterback and they can't seem to find them. So incredible good fortune for both teams. You know, Cincinnati's been searching. Andy Dalton certainly was was more than serviceable for them, got them into the postseason multiple years. But, you know, the, Joe Burrow is a different level. And if you're holding a gun to my head, I, I say Burrow, but I think it's it's a very slim margin. Herbert is, is such a special player. Um, their personalities are a little bit different. You know, we had a chance to spend some time with both of them this year via Zoom. Burrow has that really quiet confidence. I think it, you know, it approaches maybe, you know, a bit of brashness, but, you know, he's just a very measured, confident kid. And he knew that he belonged the, the day he, the moment he stepped through the doors um, with Cincinnati this year. And Justin Herbert is more kind of a shy, you know, quiet guy, certainly confident. Um, but it was interesting to see kind of the difference in their personalities. But in terms of their their abilities as rookie quarterbacks, I, I was just blown away by both players. Um, it was certainly – it was really unfortunate to see what happened to Burrow. But, you know, he's young. You know, those young bodies could bounce back. And I think everyone's expecting that uh, he's going to come back with a vengeance. I hope he does because I can't wait to see what the two of those guys can accomplish. Now, I know you had a great relationship with Anthony Lynn. And he was a guy who – Personally, I was hoping the Giants would be able to land as a fan and bring him in to be the offensive coordinator. Lynn lands in Detroit as a member of Dan Campbell's staff. What do you make of the new staff that the Lions are assembling? Well, you know, I, I'm a huge fan of Anthony Lynn, no doubt. You know, we had a chance to, to spend a lot of time with him the last couple of years. I, I thought he brought something to the Chargers that the franchise was really missing for a good number of years. Um, you know, you think back to the Mike McCoy era, yeah, there was just a, a lack of toughness, I think, with that team, with McCoy's teams. And then suddenly Anthony Lynn walks in, who is such a respected football man. Um, the minute he walks into the locker room, he garners respect. And I think that starts with his, his journey, you know, to get to the point that he became a head coach. Uh, Blue-collar guy as a player, you know, kind of overlooked, had to earn everything he got. And that really translated into his coaching career. You know, he had to wait many, many years to get a chance. Uh, finally was elevated in Buffalo, interim. And then that led to the head coaching position with the Chargers. Uh, started well, uh, but obviously didn't end the way they wanted. Team elects to go in a different direction. I think what Lynn brings to Campbell's staff is another seasoned veteran, a guy who's been in that chair, who's had to make all the tough decisions. And, and this, I think, allows Anthony to get back to what he loved, you know, now he won't be tasked with making the tough decisions, the game management that people were on him on uh, at the end of game, some of the mistakes maybe that he made, and he can just kind of get back to calling plays and coaching up his guys. And I think he's going to really enjoy that. And um, we'll see. I mean, I've always been a fan of Dan Campbell, but you know, this is, this is the thing now it's not about likability anymore. It's about getting your team in a position to win games. And that's all Campbell's going to be judged on at the end of the day. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, he's got a great support staff there. Lynn, Deuce Staley coming aboard. He's definitely mm -hmm. got the right guys around him. I do want to shift over uh, to your own career, because when I introduced you, Spiro, I introduced you as Fordham's finest. And of course, everyone in the industry knows WFUV, one of the best college stations every year in the country. You know, you took a path that a lot of guys dream of. You had almost instant success in the field, covered the Olympics at 24, Lakers voice in your mid-20s. 
how did you do that? I mean, to what do you credit your quick ascension in the field? Um, you know, I, first of all, I thank you for the kind words. For, uh, Vince Scully is Fordham's finest. I'm, I'm way <laughs> down the list. There's about a hundred guys in front of me who, uh, who are some of my heroes who came out of Fordham, Mike Breen, Bob Papa, Chris Carino, uh, Michael Kay, you know, kind of a who's who with the current New York broadcasters who are in the business right now. Uh, it was such an amazing place. You know, I, I knew when I was a high school junior and senior, when I really started to think about doing this as a career and pursuing it in college, I knew that Fordham was where I wanted to be. Syracuse was always kind of the beacon, but you know, you're up there in upstate New York, kind of removed from New York City and all the opportunities that presented themselves in the city. So I knew that Fordham was where I wanted to be. And it turned out to be one of the good decisions I've made in my life. Um, the, the great thing about it was the minute you're at FUV, you become part of this fraternity and you get a chance to meet all of these guys. You know, Mike Breen would come in and do workshops with us. Michael Kay, Bob Pop, all the guys I just mentioned, they'd listen to our tapes. They'd give us advice and it was just so mind blowing to have access to these guys as a, as a college freshman and a college sophomore. And it just allowed you to kind of build your confidence up and build your confidence up and to get experience at a 50,000 watt college run radio station in the middle of New York city. I mean, that, that's an opportunity that you just dream about. And that really was the launching off point for all of us. And, and after that, honestly, it's luck. It's luck more than anything else, because I knew as all of those opportunities were coming my way, that there was another thousand guys who were more qualified than me, who were more talented than I was at that point. And so I, I was, you know, not the smartest guy, but smart enough to know that I needed to stay humble, continue to work hard and, and to just keep my head down and just try to continue to improve. Because one thing you learn in this business, it's so cutthroat. You know, there's, there's always guys gunning for your job and gals. And so you really have to stay focused on your craft and, and, and never get too complacent with what you're doing. Well, I'd say it's all working out pretty well, man. Look, before I let you go, I have to get to this because you were the voice of the Lakers. And even though this episode's going to drop Thursday, it is the one year anniversary of the tragic passing of Kobe, his daughter, Gianna, seven others in that helicopter crash. Was there one specific moment, one interaction, one story that you have with Kobe Bryant from your time there that really will stand out to you today and for the rest of your life? You know, I've talked to a bunch of people and, and people have asked me that. I, I think Kobe as a player to, to be able to watch him every night was just, it, it, there's no words to describe what it was like. You know, the way he challenged you as a broadcaster, you, you never knew what he was capable of when you walked into the building. And that, you know, I quickly had to realize that and really had to kind of up my game at that point of my career. Um, so many memories as a player. I mean, obviously everyone talks about the 81 point game, um, the 61 point game at the garden, you know, Madison square garden held such a special place for me to be able to witness him do that in that arena was incredible. 50 points in four straight games, uh, the 62 point game against Dallas in three quarters, just a couple of weeks removed from the 81 point game. I think people forget about that, but all of the basketball stuff aside, Joe, I, I find myself since the accident thinking about just little interactions I had with him off the floor, you know, whether it was on the back of the team plane, uh, the players would sit up in the front section of the plane. Um, we, the broadcasters would be in the back and sometimes Kobe would kind of wander 
uh, to our section and, and we'd kind of shoot the breeze, talk about the game, talk about certain things that were going on. Um, it could be a little interaction in, a, in the team hotel. Uh, I remember a, a one night during the, the finals in Orlando in 09, me sitting in the, the hotel lobby with a bunch of my friends who had come out from LA and Kobe wandered into the lobby and saw us kind of sitting around and asked if he could join us and ended up sitting with us for an hour. And we talked about everything except basketball, you know, talked about life, talked about his family. He was asking my buddies about their lives and what was going on with them. Uh, just one of those moments that you just, is just so surreal that someone of his magnitude um, would sit with you like that. But he was, you know, once I got to know him a little bit, he just kind of wanted to be a normal guy. You know, he was, he was such a, an approachable guy, um, different from the persona that I think we all saw on the floor, you know, that we kind of create in our own mind. And I think we saw that in the later years of his life, you know, his, his post-playing career. He had become just such, a, such an incredible father to his girls. And, and you know, I think about his, his, his daughters and his wife and his family, his parents, you know, the pain that they must be living with every day. And, you know, it's more kind of those human um, human moments and the human, I think, aftermath of, of a tragedy like that. You know, the other families who, whose lives are forever changed, you know, they have to live with that pain now every day. So I pray for them. Um, it's, it's crazy to think it's been a year since it happened and it's still, it's still hard to process, to be honest with you. Definitely for me, one of those things that uh, you'll remember the rest of your life, exactly where you were when that news broke, you know, not too many events are like that, but his passing absolutely will be. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's um, I think about it still, I, I give you know, the hairs on the back of your neck stand up seeing the tweet and not believing it. But, you know, I, I heard Pau Gasol say in an interview and, and I couldn't agree more. My, my first reaction when I saw it was he survived, you know, he he's walked away. They just don't know yet. The, the reports aren't, aren't updated yet, but there's no way that he's, he's perished in that crash. And that's how invincible he was for, all of us, you know, who, you know, even his fans watching him, those of us who had a, a, a good fortune to know him a little bit, he just had this invincibility to him. And, you know, when you realize he's gone, just crazy. It's crazy. Absolutely is powerful stuff. Spiro, thanks so much for the time. Before you go, where can everyone listening catch you for your next college basketball broadcast on CBS? We will be working the Ohio State Michigan State game this Sunday on CBS. Uh, it'll be a one o'clock Eastern tip, and I will be with the governor, Mr. Bill Raftery. So we're looking forward to it. No better partner, I'd imagine. Thanks so much for your time. Thanks for joining Sorallo Sports Talk. Thanks, Joe. My pleasure. We'll be right back right after this. Don't change that channel. It's time for Joe's final word here on Sorallo Sports Talk. It is time for my final word right here on Sorallo Sports Talk. And what an incredible spot just now from Spiro Didis, of course, NFL College Hoops on CBS announcer. I mean, that Kobe stuff at the end, how powerful, how incredible was that? Of course, knows football inside and out, especially the AFC teams that he's covered all year. Great insight heading into Super Bowl 55. But man, if I'm going to take anything away from that conversation with Spiro right there, 
It's all about Kobe Bryant. Now, for my final word, the Major League Baseball Hall of Fame, for the first time since 1960, will not be inducting any new members right here in 2021. First time since 2013 that the baseball writers don't vote anyone in. That happened more recently, but no new inductees for the first time since 1960. Of course, back in 2013, there were three inductees from the Veterans Committee, all of whom were dead by 1939. Now, for this year's class, the one thing I will say is if you are one of the 14 writers who handed in a blank ballot, who didn't think that there was one single Hall of Famer on this ballot, you should never be able to vote again. Because there were Hall of Famers on this ballot. At the same time, I don't necessarily have a huge problem with no one collectively getting the 75% of the vote necessary to be a Hall of Famer. Would I have voted for several people on this ballot? Absolutely. But I can understand why for different reasons, it's tough with this group to get 75% of the writers to agree that anyone is a Hall of Famer. Now for me, the biggest guys who I think have a case are guys that weren't even close, weren't even in the top three. Guys like Billy Wagner, who for the time he played was one of the most dominant closers in the game, probably second to Mariana Rivera, who's of course the only unanimous selection in Baseball Hall of Fame history. Guys like Andrew Jones, who didn't make it much longer than his prime, didn't really last much longer than the age of 32, but man, before the age of 32, compiled 10 gold gloves, finished his career with over 400 home runs, at his peak, had Willie Mays-like numbers in his 20s. I mean, Andrew Jones is, in his prime, one of the best center fielders I've ever seen play baseball. He is a Hall of Famer to me. Jeff Kent, 1,500 RBIs at the second base position. I mean, I don't want to hear anything about Chase Utley being a Hall of Famer in a couple years if Jeff Kent can't catch a break right now. For me, the more controversial guys, because Wagner, Andrew Jones, Jeff Kent, they're not getting the numbers that they need, although Wagner had a big jump going from 31% to 46% this year, but they still deserve so much more than they're getting. The controversial ones, of course, Bonds, Clemens, Kurt Schilling, Manny Ramirez, Omar Vizquel now with this domestic violence history that he's accumulating. I mean, these are the controversial cases. And if I'm voting, I wrestle with Ramirez, probably don't put him in. But out of all those, the one who I vote in is Barry Bonds. To me, Barry Bonds is a Hall of Famer. And the sad reality is that next year, based on recent years, him and Roger Clemens gaining next to no traction. Next year, Bonds and Clemens will both be in their final year and will both probably not make the Hall of Fame. And it really upsets me that Barry Bonds, in all likelihood, won't be a Hall of Famer. This is a guy who saw what Mark McGuire was doing, right? Who saw what Sammy Sosa was doing, who saw what Jose Canseco was doing, and he hopped on the train. And does that make it right? No, of course not. It's the old adage, if all your friends jump off a bridge, would you do it too? Of course it doesn't make it right that he hopped on the steroid train. But this is a guy who was going to hit 500 home runs, probably 600, before using steroids. Similarly to Alex Rodriguez in terms of his career trajectory. This was a guy who, if anything, was a much better fielder, was a gold glove winner prior to using steroids. A guy who could actually steal 40 bases, be a 40-40 guy prior to using steroids. And that's why it breaks my heart to see Bonds in this situation right now, because he was undoubtedly a Hall of Fame talent, an all-time talent, without using a single roid. 
Guys like Mark McGuire, Sammy Sosa, Manny Ramirez. You can make the argument, but it's not as crystal clear as Barry Bonds. And this is also why, if I had a vote, I would vote for Barry Bonds and not Roger Clemens. Because to me, you can pinpoint exactly when Roger Clemens' career started going downhill. He was dominant and in all likelihood clean in the mid to late 80s, very early 90s. And then all of a sudden, with Boston, saw his career start to flounder. Saw a four-year stretch where he compiled an ERA almost of four and a record barely above 500. Four years. Then he goes to Toronto for two seasons, wins the Cy Young Award both years, wins 20 games both years, regains his dominance both years, and cashes out with the New York Yankees not too long after that. I mean, you're going to tell me that you can't pinpoint exactly when Roger Clemens started using steroids and exactly how they saved his career? To me, it's like that's so blatantly obvious that I leave Clemens off my ballot. But Barry Bonds never had the dip in production. Barry Bonds was still on the up and coming. He was still going to be a Hall of Famer if he played a full career cleanly. And I take that into account. Same thing comes for Alex Rodriguez when he'll hit the ballot. I look at those two, and anyone who knows baseball knows that without steroids, they are surefire, no doubt about it, Hall of Famers. Roger Clemens, probably borderline, but you can't with certainty say he would have been a Hall of Famer without using steroids. And that's why I leave him off and I'd put Bonds on. Now, my favorite story of the week is Kurt Schilling. Because Kurt Schilling is a borderline Hall of Famer statistically. Regular season, had a very good career. The playoffs, you could argue, are what put him over the hump, what make him a Hall of Famer, if that's the approach you want to take to the argument. But it's borderline. It's close. And one thing that the Hall of Fame has stated on numerous occasions that it values is character. And Kurt Schilling just can't get out of his own way because of how big of an asshole he is. And that is why he does not deserve to be a Hall of Famer. Don't forget, you need the media to vote you in, right? It's the Baseball Writers Association of America who votes on the Hall of Fame. And this is a guy who wears shirts that say media members should be lynched. Not exactly cozying up to the guys voting for you, are you, Kurt? And yet it's still, for most guys, doesn't get taken into account. I mean, hell, he only missed it by 16 votes. Got over 71% of the 75 needed to get in. Just 16 votes shy. And boy, am I glad he didn't get those 16 Because Kurt Schilling has no character. And then sends a letter to Cooperstown, to the Baseball Hall of Fame, saying, don't even put me on the ballot next year for my final year of eligibility. I don't want to be in your Hall of Fame. And then goes on to say, I'll wait for the Veterans Committee, who actually knows what they're talking about, to vote me in years from now. I I mean, the guy contradicts himself. The guy can't make up his mind. And his political beliefs are not the reason I think his character doesn't equate to that of a Hall of Fame character. It's not his political beliefs, it's how he acts and what he says. And I'm sorry to intertwine the two because I know some people are gonna take this the wrong way, but Kurt Schilling sounds too damn much like Donald Trump, like a sore loser bitch, to deserve a spot in the Hall of Fame. So good, if you wanna cry, get taken off the ballot. He'll walk around saying he took himself off the ballot, but let's face it, that's like settling in court when you know you're going to lose. Sound familiar? I have no respect for Kurt Schilling, 
I have no respect for Omar Vizquel. If the allegations are true, if he's really beaten his wife on numerous occasions, these are two guys with some serious character flaws who do not deserve to be in the Hall of Fame. So, Kurt, take yourself off the ballot. You weren't getting it anyway. And just like that, the next time you hear my voice, I'll be in Tampa Bay covering Super Bowl 55. But for now, episode 20 of Serralo Sports Talk is up. It's over. It's out of here. I'll see you next week from sunny Tampa. Come on. I'm the definition of... Half man, half drugs, ask the clubs, bad boy, that's what's up, after bucks, crush crews after us, no games, we ain't laughing much, nothing but big things, check the hit list, how we twist shit, what changed with the name, we still here, you're rocking with the best, don't worry if I write rhymes, I write checks, who's the boss, dudes is lost, don't think cause I'm iced out, I'ma cool off, who else but me, and if you don't feel me, that means you can't touch me, it's ugly, Trust me, get it right, dog. We ain't never left. We just move in silence and rep to the death. It's official. I survived what I've been through. Y'all got drama. The saga continues. We ain't going nowhere. We ain't going nowhere. We can't be stopped now. Cause it's bad boy for life. We ain't going nowhere. We ain't. From the Harlem streets, I don't play y'all pussy down with the Harlem heat. All of a sudden, niggas got a problem with me. Black, what happened? They running around acting like the black don't care eat. And you know what? What? For some strange reason, I'm off for this medication, feeling deranged, needing for y'all to put the word out. We ain't leaving. We trying to be rich before we all stop breathing. Therefore, we kind of hustle lanes. Stay laying down our muscle games. Still turn niggas' dreams to flames. You got the wire? If not, I ain't saying no names. You soon expire. No pain. I feel remorseless. Of course, it's me and Diddy up first. Racing Porsches with the big twin valve exhausted. On the cover of your vibes. Double like sounds and sauces, bitch. We ain't going nowhere. We ain't going nowhere. We can't be stopped now. Cause it's bad boy for life. We ain't going nowhere. Since the notorious, see everything still glorious. We still got warriors, still be the victorious. See, it's a lot of them, but it's more of us. Still got cash to blow, raps to flow, still them cats to know, pack to flow, that's for sure. Bottles to pop, joints to rock, play the background, handle my jock, holding my glock, money to get. Cost to flip, boss to sit at and sip cognac with juice to drip, hoes to see, make sure they know it's me. Drop that D, can't believe that I am C. Bad boy to the casket drop, gotta love it, place nothing above it. It's on like that, don't believe we ain't going like that. For always gonna be here, we there, every motherfucker's here. We ain't going nowhere, we ain't going nowhere, we can't be stopped now. Right here, forever.
and ever we can't be ever and it's bad boy for life we ain't going nowhere we gonna stay right here we ain't going nowhere we gonna stay right here for life Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.